0: Defining moments, defining moments, every one of us has them, those moments that that shape us, moments that change us, moments that can forever alter the course of our own lives. It could be an acceptance letter. It could be the beginning of a career. It could be the end of a career. It could be the birth of a child. It could be the loss of a loved one how we respond in those moments says, in fact, a great deal about us. So do we flee at the first sight of battle like Henry Fleming in Crane's Red Badge of Courage or do we dig in our heels and do we fight? Do we stand up and oppose evil? Right? Whether we're talking about a Rosa Parks or a William Wilberforce or do we sit down and say Nothing. Do we, maybe if you're younger in the room, do we give in to peer pressure when we're first offered alcohol or drugs or when we're pressured by a boyfriend or girlfriend, or do we simply walk away? When we have that opportunity to take a stand for Jesus, do we speak up, or do we close our mouths, cower, and say nothing? Each one of us, We all have moments that define us, moments, again, that shape us, alter our lives. Some of those moments we can be proud of, and yet if we're honest with ourselves and if we're thinking about our own lives, many of those moments we're not so proud of. Some of those moments we'd, in fact, desperately like to forget. Friends, I wonder how such moments have shaped you. And for those moments that you prefer to delete, to blot out of your memory, is there a way back, way Well, friends, it's just these kinds of questions that we're going to be thinking about as we return to our study in the book of Mark this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We have actually the, the text of uh, the sermon chapter uh, 14 in Mark. It's in your worship guide there, ministry guide. You should be able to find it on page 9. And if you're just joining with us in the study of Mark this morning, we are in the final hours of Jesus' own life. So the days of Jesus' teaching beside the lazy sea of Galilee, right? those days are long gone. The days of the crowds that anxiously hung on his every word, those days also are now long gone. The wonder of seeing leprosy leprosy healed and, and storms calmed, of crowds fed, of the dead raised to life. Those days of joy and awe and expectation. Well, those days have now been exchanged for days that are shrouded in gloom and in darkness. The Jewish leadership has put a bounty on Jesus' own head. And Jesus, in the previous verses, has just prophesied that, in fact, one of his own will betray him. And so now Jesus leads them out of Jerusalem on Passover night and into the darkness. And we pick up the story, chapter 14, verse 27. And relax, get comfortable. We're going to read 1427 through the end of the chapter, all right? And Jesus said to them, that is as he led them out of of the house toward the Mount of Olives. He said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night... Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. and fled and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked and they led jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together and peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Friends, we've come to a host of defining moments in these verses from Mark chapter 14. We have Jesus pleading there in the garden with the Father. You have the disciples fleeing, and one of them, rather awkwardly, we read, streaking into the darkness. You have the Sanhedrin condemning the very one who has come to save them. And there is Peter denying just a few short hours... After Jesus predicted denying the very one that he had promised to die for, most of the characters in this account do not fare so well. It is fair to say most of them fail miserably at their own defining moments. Save one, save Jesus. And I think it's here, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in Mark's gospel, that we learn who Jesus is and exactly what Jesus came to do. It's in this defining moment of Jesus' life, I think we learn four things about Jesus. I'm just going to give those to you now, and those are going to serve as our outline this morning. These four things, these verses, teach us, I think, about Jesus' life and his ministry. First, he is our sacrifice. Second, he is our substitute. Third, he is God's son. And fourth, he is our savior. Those four things are going to, again, serve as our outline. He's our sacrifice, our substitute, God's son, and our savior. If you missed it, you'll get it as we go along. All right, first, he is our sacrifice. He is our sacrifice, So as the disciples leave that celebratory Passover meal, Jesus begins, as he walks and leaves with them, with that jarring warning, verse 27, you will all fall away. So not only has he just said that one of the 12 would betray him, but Jesus says that's actually worse, all of you will fall away from me. And Jesus' pronouncement, it's going to be met with a chorus of protests. Right? We'll see that. But notice he grounds the claim there, and actually in Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. You know, in Zechariah, in the context there, God is striking and scattering his people as judgment for their sin. Jesus is, in effect, by grabbing those words of Zechariah, Jesus is saying, I am the one, in the words of Isaiah 53, 4, who is, Smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted. In short, Jesus is saying, listen, I am that sacrifice for sinners. That Passover meal we just celebrated, let me underscore it again, I am that sacrifice. Now maybe you've come this morning and this whole notion of sin, this whole notion of sacrifice feels very strange, may feel very foreign to you, and I I get it because many and in today's culture, right, they would see the primary problem of humanity, just to quote a Disney star, right? Authoritative on such matters. Disney Star said this past week, no, the problem is that we actually haven't been sufficiently true to ourselves. Right? That's how she identified the major problems in this world, right? We we haven't embraced ourselves, we haven't lived up and, and lived true to our full potential. That's often how people talk about the true errors and problems of this life. But the Bible presents a very different problem. It says the problem is is not, in fact, that we have failed to reach our true potential. It's not that we have failed to become the best version of ourselves. The Bible says the problem is that we actually fundamentally live for ourselves. And in doing so, in living for ourselves, we reject God. And that's the essence, the Bible says, of sin, demanding that we have life our way and not God's way. And in the Bible, because God is good, because he is just, he will judge sin. He punishes sin. For God cannot claim to be good while also turning a blind eye to evil and to sin, to injustice, even when that injustice comes by our own hands. Which is why the Bible says sacrifices are required. Because sins make us all debtors to God. Sin costs something. Sacrifices are the payment, the absolution, the way to restitution. And because God is an infinitely good God, restitution requires an infinitely good sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, as he quotes Zechariah, I am that sacrifice for sinners, which means you can never truly come to, to know Jesus, you can never truly come to appreciate Jesus, to truly cherish Jesus until you understand yourself to be a sinner and Christ to be your sacrifice. That's at the heart of the Christian message. And this is what the disciples have yet to grasp, right? They want Jesus, they're not looking for a sacrifice, Right? They, want, they want a different kind of savior. They want a kind of patriot, a conqueror. They want a kind of religious Robin Hood who's going to overthrow Rome right? and put them on their own thrones and kingdoms. It's why Peter is going to confidently respond, verse 29, even though, classic Peter pointing to the rest, even though they all will fail you, I know I won't fail you, he says. Even after Jesus predicts Peter's denial, he still, after that, emphatically insists If I must die with you, I will, but I will not deny you, he says. Peter seems to be picturing maybe some epic battle where like Jesus is going out as as William Wallace, if you'll pardon the anachronism, right? Thinking something like that. And together he's saying, listen, if necessary, Jesus, together we're going to go down in a blaze of glory. But neither Peter nor the disciples see Jesus as their sacrifice which is why when that time comes and he is seized, it's why they flee. It's why they scatter. The disciples, they fail to recognize that Jesus didn't fundamentally come to solve political, military, socioeconomic problems. That's not why he came. He came to solve the fundamental spiritual problem of sin. And because Peter and the disciples don't understand that their most desperate need is spiritual, they will be ill-prepared to fight the spiritual battles that are ahead of them. They'll seek to act right in their own strength and not in the strength that Christ supplies. My Christian friend, I just want you to see you in the the kind of the pride and the the presumption of Peter. Just see in this how self-dependence is the great enemy of faith. Self-dependence is the great enemy of faith. Because Peter, yeah, he's full of bluster and bravado. He's got lots of that. Peter can talk a big game. But as we come to see, that is all it is with Peter. It is all a lot of talk. We can do nothing in the Christian life apart from Christ's help. Nothing at all. And Jesus, actually, he helps us see our need for this divine help. When he goes off to pray, right? Jesus does not go off and say, right, it's time to lift some weights. It's time to pull out my sword and sort of practice my exercises. No, he knows the battle that he has to fight. It's not a physical one. He's not gearing up for that. Jesus doesn't go out into that garden and start rehearsing his courtroom defense. Because at the end of the day, that's not what it's about. It's not a cat and mouse game for him there in the courtroom. It's not an intellectual game. Jesus goes off, what, to pray because the fundamental battles we face, he is helping us see they are spiritual battles. They're spiritual battles. And Peter naively presumes upon his own inherent resources. He presumes upon his strength. And that presumption is the precursor to defection. He is spiritually proud Did you ever think maybe that's why God would have that pride exposed in a rooster? The kind of cocky animal that likes to strut its stuff, that's got a big mouth to remind Peter of his own foolish boasts? Again, my Christian friend, self-dependence is the great enemy of faith. Are you living this morning as if your lives, if you're a Christian, are you living as if your greatest battles are spiritual battles? So do you, in the course of your life, regularly stop to pray? Do you set aside time for extended prayer? Or are you quick simply to assume that when situation gets difficult, it's going to be your wits or your hard work or your grit that's going to get you through? Do you invest your life in God's word, knowing that God's word, it is the wisdom of God, and it holds forth what a life looks like in pursuit of God, to the glory of God, or do you quickly look for wisdom elsewhere? Friend, do you invest in deep Christian community because you know that you are prone, like the disciples, to self-deception, to wandering and to stumbling and to defecting from Christ, which is why you need community, and it's why community actually needs you. Are you quick to repent and seek the forgiveness of others? Or are you too proud to admit your mistakes? And would you prefer to rest on your own self-righteousness? Recognize a life lived without much fervent prayer, a life lived without deep consideration of God's word, without faithful and genuine fellowship in Christian community, a life lived without repentance, that is just a life of naive presumption which leads to one place. And look at Peter. Look at the rest of the disciples. It leads to defection. It's only when we know we can do nothing that our spiritual poverty becomes the channel of his supernatural power. But friend, there's a second thing I want us to see about Jesus. Yes, he is our sacrifice. But secondly, he is our substitute. He is our substitute. You know, the scene here in Gethsemane, it is one of the most sacred, I think, in solemn scenes in all the scriptures. Because perhaps nowhere do we see the humanity of Jesus more on display then we see it right here in this text. Because Jesus is going to take the disciples out in the evening. He's going to take them to an olive grove. He's going to take them to pray. Because again, Jesus understands the battles that are about to be waged are spiritual battles. They require spiritual weaponry. And we read in verse 33 that though as he goes, he begins to be greatly distressed, we read. Troubled. Both those words are rare words that speak to the particular kind of anguish and agony that Jesus finds himself right now. Grabbing from Psalm 42 that Hannah read earlier in the service, we read verse 34, Jesus grabs that language and he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Grabbing the lament of the Psalms, he's praying those laments. That describes his experience. Verse 35, he collapses literally under the burden that he bears. You know, Gethsemane means olive press. Here, Jesus, right? He's being pressed. He's being squeezed, such that Luke says he sweat like drops of blood. Friends, nothing in the Bible, nothing in all of human experience compares to Jesus' own agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Hebrews 5.7 says that Jesus uttered those prayers with loud cries and tears. Makes you wonder, what were the disciples thinking was happening as they heard Jesus cry out in his prayers? This is no stoic Jesus serenely marching toward his fate. Right. This is Jesus tortured. This is Jesus tormented. Friends, why? What makes this night, in this experience in Gethsemane, so terrifying for Jesus. We actually learn why in his prayer. It's the only prayer we're given in Mark. We're actually given the content of the prayer. We're told, teach- we, we're told Jesus prays at various and critical points in the gospel, but other than maybe the cry on the cross, this is the only time we're actually given the content of what Jesus prays. And the prayer, verse 36 That Jesus is offering up is that desperate plea that God would remove, he says, remove this cup from me. Well, what is the cup Jesus is referring to? What does he so desperately want to be removed? Well, it's the cup of sin. Whose sin? Friends, our sin, your sin. It's the cup that contains the brutality of a thousand wars. The cup of abuse, the cup of jealousy, the cup of lies and of adultery and murder and rage. That's the cup God has set before Jesus and called him to drink. But it's not just the cup of our sin. It is even more than that. It is also the cup of God's wrath against sin. It's the cup of God's judgment as we saw back in Mark 10 verse 38. It is the cup of God's righteous anger. His holy and terrifying wrath poured out on sinners. This is the cup that the Father held out to the Son. This is the cup that he called Jesus to drink. And gazing into that cup Jesus saw hell open up for him, and he staggered. You know, I once heard a sermon on this text, and the pastor turned this text on Jesus and his agony in Gethsemane, and he turned it into five tips on how to deal with stress. And he was well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. He was well-intentioned and maybe at like a 10th degree level, way down at the bottom. Maybe there's some, some important points of application we could make here, but that entirely misses the point of what is uniquely happening in this garden for this is not like any other death. Right, this is not Socrates with his cup of hemlock. We cannot make that comparison. Jesus was going to his death. He was going uniquely. He was going alone as the sin bearer and as our substitute. Not his sins. He was going to bear the excruciating weight of the world's sins upon his shoulders. And to bear that burden, to carry that load we cannot possibly fathom what that would be like. Right? That is of cosmic proportions. That load has eternal consequences. Jesus here, he's not terrified of his own mortality. What so profoundly shakes Jesus in the garden is the thought that in his death, as that substitute, he will face the indescribable experience of what it means to be forsaken by God. It's why he looks into that cup and he beholds its bitter dregs and he is overcome with horror. God's wrath. He has righteous indignation against sin. It is just and it will be spent, not withdrawn. Either Jesus will drink it for us or we will spend all eternity drinking it ourselves. You know, as we sang in that opening song, Jesus, thank you, it was Jesus, what did we sing? Who drank the bitter cup reserved for me? Friends, that's the great Christian hope, that that cup that you and I cannot dare to drink, that we cannot bear to do it, that Jesus struggles, fighting to do, that Jesus has done that as our substitute. That's our hope, that God himself would give himself to save us from himself. Friends, if you've come and you are not a Christian, you don't identify with Jesus, or maybe you've heard the Christian gospel a little bit, but you've never quite heard it like this. Friends, God has a righteous wrath towards sin, and we need him too, if he is to be fair and just and loving. But that's a problem for all of us. But this text is teaching us. Jesus is helping us see that he bore that. He was that sacrifice. He is that substitute for all of those who would see their need for him, who would see their own sin, see God's indignation against it, see their offense against him, and repent that sin. Genuinely turn from it and say, I don't want any part of it. I give it to Jesus. I trust it to him. I follow him alone. I walk by faith in him. That's the good news of the Christian gospel, that you can be reconciled to God, and that is the only way, Jesus says, to be reconciled to him. Friend, if you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith upon Christ, you don't need to wait. You can right now pray and ask that God would forgive you. You can repent and you can trust and give your life to Jesus and then walk with him as Jesus would command you to walk with him in the fellowship of the other Christians. But friends, just because it was God's will for Jesus doesn't mean it was easy for Jesus. I mean, notice how he prayed in verse 35. If it were possible, right? If it's possible, the hour, the hour of his death, the hour of his coming sacrifice, so it's possible that could pass. And he says, God, all things are possible for you. Right, remove this cup, he prays. Friends, Jesus didn't want to die. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that but he didn't have a morbid death wish. Jesus wasn't going through life looking forward to the moment when he would be killed. Jesus wrestled with the plan of God. Jesus wanted here in this garden, he actually wants there to be another way. He is praying for another way. He is hoping for another way. We're told he prayed this way not just once, but he prayed the same words, verse 39. He prays it again. And then he prays, Jesus does a third time to the same effect. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is begging God, there's, is there another way? Is it possible there's another way? A way without the cross. In the garden, this garden, he is genuinely tempted to forsake the role that God has given him. Does that surprise you? Friend, should that surprise you? You know, some early Christians, some medieval Christians, they were embarrassed by what they classify here as Jesus' own apparent weakness. There was a second century opponent of Christianity, Celsus, and he actually turned to this and he said, look, I mean, look at Jesus, look how pathetic he is. He's clearly not divine. Something, I mean, I've simplified it. That's basically what he says. But friend, what we have here in the garden is we have a window into Jesus' own humanity. Jesus was fully divine, yes. He was also fully human. And it's his humanity here that unites us to him. It's Jesus' own humanity here that beckons us to cry out to him. Friends, he understands. When we are struggling with God's way, And when we desperately want another way, this Jesus, we can come to him and he understands. When we're fighting to accept God's will for our lives, he gets it and we can go to him. Friend, in your suffering, nobody will understand you like Jesus Nobody will listen to you like this Jesus will listen to you. Nobody will cry with you like this Jesus will. Nobody will weep with you and will bear with you like this Jesus. Nobody, which is why you can go to him. You know, in Dane Ortland's new book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, he wonderfully writes, he says, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. Friends, that's the Jesus that the gospels bring to you. But, I mean, I also want you to see something else here. Jesus, he's in the greatest trial of his life, He is offering in this moment the most guttural and the most heartfelt prayers that he has ever uttered. And what words did Jesus hear in response? No. No. Two more times. Three times Jesus prays. Two more times. The answer is the same. The Father is saying to the Son, there is not another way. This is the path. This is the road. This is the cross that you must bear. The answer, Jesus, is no. My Christian friend, if Jesus, if Jesus hears the word no and still submits himself to the will of the Father because he knows the character and love of the Father, should we be surprised If in our greatest trials, our Father gives us the same answer and expects from us the same response, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. He trusted the will of that Father. When everything around him screamed that the Father is not good, he can't be good, and he cannot be trusted, that there must be another way, there must be an easier way, but in those prayers, as Jesus brought them to God and poured out his heart to his Father, as he communed with them, he would find his will aligned with him, and he would find supernatural strength in God. Where the first Adam and the first garden here failed to trust the Father, so the second Adam in the second garden, he succeeded. That's why he called the disciples, right, verse 34, to watch. To watch and pray, he says again, verse 38. Because Jesus knows they too are about to be tempted and tried. They too need to prepare themselves. You know, my Christian friend, the Christian life is one of preparation. It is one of training. The most critical moment in the Christian life is not that moment when the trial strikes. It's actually all those moments that came before when you should have been preparing yourself and readying yourself for that trial. You know, we can sleep and slumber our way through the Christian life, much like the disciples did. We can fail to watch and pray. But friend, recognize the result will be no better than the result we hear and we see on these pages of Scripture. And it's not pretty, right? For in the dark, what do we see? In the dark and in the dead of night, Judas now arrives And with him comes an armed like military and police escort. That's the sense of what we get as we look at the other gospels. And yet with with a gesture of love, right, a kiss, and with a word of honor, right, he says rabbi, Judas betrays his own mission of hate. And the fact that Judas gets this close to Jesus, it just speaks to the fact that the disciples were not watching and the disciples were not praying. And at this point, Luke records that the disciples now, as, as they come, the disciples ask Jesus, hey, should we unsheath our swords? And Jesus is going to respond, but Peter doesn't wait for an answer. Peter just grabs his sword, and he swings, striking the servant of the high priest, likely striking his helmet. It ricochets off, cuts off that high priest's ear. Peter clearly still thinks, I guess, he's on a military mission. Maybe he's thinking, this is the call to arms. This is when things get, get real. You know, it's a tragic reminder right here with Peter's strike of how easy it is to be woefully out of step with Jesus at the very moment when we think we're serving him and when we think we're even defending him. Now, at this point, with a Roman cohort now arrayed, right, Jesus' sword, they're going to draw all their swords. And that would have been a frightening sight. And with the sight of Jesus now being drugged away, the disciples are left. Well, they leave him. They flee from him, just as the scriptures and Jesus said they would. So all those who drank that Passover cup just a few hours before, all those who so proudly and boldly and courageously pledged to die with him, have now deserted him. This is the last we hear of the disciples Other than Peter, it's the last we hear of the disciples in Jesus' earthly life. So think Jesus' final earthly memory of his beloved disciples is their abandoning of him. They're fleeing from him. In the greatest hour of his life, they flee to save their own lives. And there's that curious spectacle of the young man in verses 51 and 52, the guy who sheds his linen garment. And kind of goes on natural into the night. That guy. You know, in the ancient Near East, nakedness was, was shameful. Nakedness was humiliating. And so it's, it's quite striking that this young man would rather trade the shame of his own public nakedness before the shame of being associated with Jesus. And it's interesting, you know, only Mark records this episode here. And we know Mark's mother was wealthy. Her home in Acts 12 was large enough to house Christian gatherings. It's likely, we don't know for certain, but it's very possible that that house they just celebrated the Passover, it's likely that was her own house, Mary's house. Linen is a fabric for the wealthy. So is it possible that, that her son grabbed Uh, linen garment and sought to follow this young son sought to follow the disciples as they went out into the night is it possible that this young man who leaves that linen garment and goes streaking out into the night naked is actually the gospel writer Mark himself many think it could be we can't know for certain but either way don't miss what we have we have one in a garden who is hiding naked and in shame. And we're right back to where it all went wrong in Genesis 3. And here is Jesus, alone. Jesus, the one who, though he's being drug off, is in fact marching off to crush the head of the serpent. He fights alone, Jesus does. He prays alone. He battles alone. And at the end of the scene, he already is truly alone. He's been abandoned by all. A reminder that what Jesus must do, he must now do alone. Salvation is not what we win for ourselves. It is what he alone must win for us. He alone must give his life as a ransom for many. He alone must serve as our substitute. But friend, there's a third thing we see about Jesus. He is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. But thirdly, he is God's son. He is God's son. And we see that in that next scene as we shift to the palace of the high priest where we see that there's a hastily convened court that's now been assembled to try Jesus. And curiously, we read verse 54, there's Peter. There's Peter, we read verse 54, who followed him at a distance, which might be a rather ominous picture. In that, are we meant to see Peter, the example of one who, traded, costly discipleship for the comfort of following Jesus at a distance? Everything about this trial, in those verses, it reeks of deceit. The court is already convened before Jesus even arrives, right? They're clearly in on the plot. The proceedings are happening in the dead of night, so the people can't be alerted. The chief priests and the whole council, verse 55, are seeking testimony against Jesus. They're already looking for it, prejudiced toward it. This is not about justice. Many, we read, are bearing false witness, verse 56. This is not about the truth. The high priest will press him. He'll say, Jesus, have you no answer to make? Verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus would not dignify these proceedings and these false accusations. Right in the words of Isaiah three seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now, fearing this kangaroo court is going nowhere, you've got Jesus calmly sitting in the dock saying nothing. The high priest then presses Jesus further. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Which is just another way of saying the son of God, because they'd never utter the divine name. Is that who you are? And it's with that most foundational question. Of Jesus' own identity. With that question on the line, here Jesus, he takes the gloves off, he removes all the masks, he grabs the mic, and he says what? I am. Echoing the divine name that God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And he says, not only that, he says, but you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is grabbing what he's done earlier with the disciples, but now he's made clear to all. Psalm 110, Daniel 7, he is in fact saying, yeah, I am the suffering servant of Isaiah. If you had ears to hear and eyes to see, you would see that, but you would see more. You would see that I am the promised Messiah from the line of David. I am the promised king who is to take David's throne. And yes, my dominion is from everlasting to everlasting, and no, it cannot be shaken, so, yes, I do stand in judgment upon this temple. I do stand in judgment upon this court. And yes, I will one day be vindicated. And I will be sitting at the right hand of God. For I am, Jesus says, the Son of God. All that testimony, what he says in those, just quoting those few verses there, that's all they need to condemn him to death. So, recognize how ironic this scene is. The one who is now accused of blasphemy is the only one who's speaking truly. The one they call to prophesy as they spit on him and strike him is in fact the only one who's prophesied truly that night. The only one who prophesied specifically. Mark 10.34, and they will mock him and spit on him and strike him and kill him. He prophesied that. That's exactly what's happening. Ironically, the parable of the tenant farmers, he is just given in Mark 12, those who kill the owner's son, that is being played out before their very eyes. Ironically, the one they condemn is the only one that can save them. Friends, in that courtroom, the rock of our salvation did not crumble. The rock of our salvation didn't even crack Will he not be strong for you? Will he not finally shield you? Will he not protect you, fight for you, and deliver you? Of course he will, and he already has. And we see it right here. But friends, there was another rock that crumbled that night. There was another rock that cracked. While Jesus was there receiving his blows, there was Peter... Remember, whose name means rock. Peter in the courtyard below. Peter trying to hide himself amidst the crowd. But to the flickering of that firelight, a young, lowly servant girl, one of no societal standing, one of no significance, sees him and says, you were with Jesus. And Peter shudders at being discovered. And so he scoffs and says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he'll then retreat away from the fire and away from the light. But she tugs at some others and she gabs some bystanders and she says, but but no. No, that's you. you. You were with him. And he denies it again. But evidently these denials, well, his own Galilean accent has now betrayed him. And so he is pressed yet a third time. And in the panic and in the fear of being discovered, Peter invokes a curse upon himself. He swears an oath and screams out into the night, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And with that, the rooster crows a second time. And the one who so proudly boasted that he would die with Jesus has just been bested by a lowly servant girl. He would rather disown his Lord than deny himself. In the defining moment of Peter's life, Peter the rock, right, not only cracks, I mean, he crumbles. Peter the rock here, he has hit rock bottom. Whatever you want to say, it's here, it's bad, it is ugly. You know, according to Luke, though, in Luke 22, it's just at this moment when Jesus looks, right? He's probably in a hallway right above that courtyard. That's where the trial's taking place. And according to Luke, it's at this moment when Jesus turns and he looks into that courtyard below. I mean, could it have been that Peter's desperate denial reached Jesus' bloody ears and he recognized that voice? And it was the sound of that voice that caused him to turn. It was the sound of that rooster crowing again. We know from Luke the two locked eyes. And face bloodied, Peter looked into those swollen eyes of Jesus. And what does he see? He sees his Savior. He sees his Savior. That's the last thing I want us to note as we've been building into the scene. Yes, he's our sacrifice. Yes, he's our substitute. Yes, Jesus is uniquely God's son. He is wonderfully our savior. Because when Peter beheld those swollen eyes, there was no hint of malice. There was no hint of anger. He did not encounter a look of how dare you? How could you? I'm done with you. That's not what Peter beheld. Peter beheld in those swollen eyes, I love you. I will forgive you. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to lead you to Galilee. Wiping back the tears, Peter would see no condemnation in those eyes. He would only experience compassion. Friends, that's the beauty of Jesus. That he does not love like we love. You know, as one noted, we love until we are betrayed. But Jesus loved all the way to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through all of the forsakenness. We love to a limit. All of us has a limit. Jesus loves to the end. This is the compassion and the strength and the love of our Savior. Friends, we all have defining moments. Those moments that shape and mold and alter our paths. There is one defining moment that still awaits, Peter. There's one defining moment that awaits all of us. One defining moment that determines not just the course of this life, but the course of the next life. It's that moment when you and I, when all of us will stand before God and when we will give an account of our lives. Friend, in that moment, will you know this Jesus as your sacrifice, as your individual substitute for sin? Will you know him as God's son, sovereign and righteous? And will you know him as your beautiful Savior? Friend, could you possibly imagine a more faithful, a more worthy, a more blessed Savior than Jesus? Let's pray.